Welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast, and speaking of music, that song that played me in is entitled Zenothra. It is from the album The Great Awakening, and that is by Shearwater. And my guest today is Jonathan Myberg. And in essence, one could say he is Shearwater, but he's also a part of a band called Loma. I had Emily Cross on the show maybe a year or two ago who is the singer of uh, Loma, uh, which is also a great episode. I'll put that in the show notes for you to make it easy for you to find. But Jonathan Myberg is a great... Um, he's great. He's a, a very highly impressive individual. And when I, I've known of... I've known Shearwater, obviously, the music and Loma. And uh, I greatly enjoy his work. But I didn't know much about Jonathan when I went into researching him for the episode. And man, what an accomplished dude. Um, he's also written a book entitled A Most Remarkable Creature, which is a modern day or is a modern voyage of discovery as we meet the clever social birds of prey called Karakak. <laughs> I can't pronounce it. He pronounces it later. Uh, but anyway, which puzzled Darwin, fascinated modern-day falconers, and carry secrets of our planet's deep past in their family history. And we talk about the book a bit, and the genesis of the book, and it's fucking really fascinating. I really, 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 really enjoy this conversation with Jonathan, and I, we talked about, a lot about music and the music we listen to, and I I feel like we both learned something. Me way more than he learned from me because he's way smarter. But a splendidly charming and gifted man. He talked to me from his new apartment in Germany. Um, Hamburg, lucky motherfucker. I got to escape the United States before it collapses. <laughs> just really, just getting out by the wire while the rest of us just sit here and stew. Um, but all links of Jonathan Myberg are in the show notes. You can get uh, the band camp for this new album and all things Shearwater, as well as I'll throw in the Loma band camp and the Penguin Random House link to his book, uh, which I have, um, it's waiting. I'm waiting for it to, to, to arrive. I'm very excited to read it. And uh, it's a little bit out of what I normally read, which makes me excited. I read a lot of memoirs. But I do read a lot of nonfiction, so it does fit. Also, very important, I should say, there is a part two to this conversation. Jonathan and I talked for an hour. You get one hour here, and then the second hour lives on my Patreon. You can go to themattdwyer.com and check out the Patreon there. And I most of my episodes have part twos. Rare is it that I have an hour interview uh, usually we're just in it and keep going, and there's lots of part twos. There's usually video. This episode doesn't have video because uh, we needed the bandwidth from his new apartment. But you can listen to the audio. Uh, there's also up there I put music blogs, and sometimes those are audio blogs or written blogs about music and life and all kinds of stuff. It's a pretty great... I'm pretty proud of my Patreon, especially now that I've been doing it for like two years. It's really... There's a huge library of bonus material there for you to explore and if you can't become a patreon ex ex subscriber just tell your fucking friends about it would you tell your friends about the podcast that means more to me than anything that you share and encourage people to listen to it but 
Anyway, if you need a website, though, you can go, uh, If because I keep mentioning websites, my partner, kellyrdewire.com, that's not her real name, but her website is Kelly R. Dewire. She builds websites. She designs websites, and she's done some big fancy ones, like My Favorite Murder and various, uh, though I'm not a fan of murder, just going to say. <laughs> not much for killing people. But anyway, uh, go there, and if you need a website, kellyrdewire.com. And I think that's all I have to talk about in this episode. Jonathan Myberg, fascinating dude, really great. Oh, and the part two, well, never mind. You just go listen. Um, enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Myberg of Shearwater. Velvet Underground documentary, which is abundant amounts of uh, Warhol footage. Yeah. Um, God damn! I did see it. It really like I watch a lot of music docs, but that really, uh, really just knocked me out. Well, it made me want to start a band. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like it really did. It made me feel like, oh man, yeah, it's fun to sit in a room with people and play music, and I'd like to start a band. And that's funny because that's like the reaction that everybody always has to the Velvet Underground. Yeah, I didn't, I like, I've been a fan, but I didn't know, I really never dived into the story or the, their personal lives or anything, and I was just really blown away by, and I guess I didn't really know that Blue Reed wrote, like, wrote pop songs for, like, a company or something. I can't remember the exact details. Song. And and not that we're, not that we're especially normal. I mean, that, that do the ostrich song is pretty crazy. Yeah, true. That's true. <laughs> I mean, really, um, <laughs> it's great, but it's out of its mind. Uh, it's funny. Cause you say it made me want to start a band. You started, a, I know you meant it jokingly, but I, I like, did it make you want to start a different kind of band or I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, well, I mean, after all that, all the stuff with Lamont Young, it did definitely made me want to sit in a room with people playing drones for hours on end. I thought <laughs> that sounds wonderful. And I would love that experience. Yeah, I did, but just before the pandemic, it was, it was one of the great regrets of that time for me is that I was about to do a tour with Jamie Stewart from Shuju as Shuju. It was going to be just the two of us. And we rehearsed for it out in Texas and everything, and some of what we were doing were these gigantic drones uh, that just kind of melted your brain. Uh, I think it would have been a really, once we'd gotten it together after a couple of shows, it would have been pretty spectacular. Do you think about doing that again? Because that sounds spectacular. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to do it. It's, it's. Uh, I think. I mean, I live in Germany now. I live in Hamburg, and uh, I think Jamie may be moving over here. I, I don't know exactly, but there's a po possibility that he may be here on a more permanent basis. So maybe we can get together and do something here. I don't know why you would leave the U.S. It's going so splendidly over here. <laughs> I know it's going really well. I was feeling good about it when I left. I... <laughs> I... Although you know. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, I was just I my I I envy. I have nothing but envy that you were able to get the fuck out of here. Like that, that's all I dream about. Thanks. Uh, I it, that it, it, it grieves me. <laughs> um, I, I felt ambivalent about it, but I've been living in Florida for the year before that, and um, even though I like the spot that I was, Florida was just like so crazy. The the, the overall level of anxiety and just general rot. It was really hard to take yeah a, 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 a pre 
Trump, I spent, I've been to Florida a lot and like I toured around Florida and it's just like when you get into like outside of the cities and into Florida, it's, you're, it's, I mean, I'm like speechless just even thinking about some of the shit I saw. It's just, yeah, it's hairy. I mean, although, I mean, it's funny, like I got a bunch of wacky things off Facebook marketplace and some carpets and things and had to drive away out of town to get them. And, um, the, the, I actually sold my car at a yard sale uh, and just put a price on it. And I sold it to this guy and the, the guy who bought it actually, I said, okay, it is the, the price listed on it. Cause I know there are other people interested. And he said, don't worry, I'm not going to do you down. Uh, and I just looked at him like, like what? And <laughs> he said, I mean, I know you can't say that anymore or whatever. And this kind of, it's just like, Oh Christ. But then again, this guy showed up with like a bulldog in the passenger seat, a miniature bulldog. And I had to go out and take the title to him out, outside of town. And he's just kind of this sort of lonely guy who had, trained animals and and the the more that I dealt with him the more I just kind of felt sorry for him I I think there's a lot of I think Florida could use some love (laughs) it gets plenty of hate and and I think love is probably what's really called for that's a great I don't know that's great and I agree I feel like we have really and I I lost our uh, sense of apathy and, or, or, or compassion, empathy. I meant to say empathy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say we're not lacking in empathy. I knew something. Surplus. Something in my brain was like, this doesn't sound right. And I couldn't, you know, I just had one of those brain moments. But yeah, I mean, em- empathy. The United States began to suffer from a superfluity of apathy. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I try of, I am trying to remind myself of that daily, that we need to be, uh, to be just more compassionate and understanding with myself as well as others. But yeah, I'm so glad you said that. You know, the, a record that I was listening to a lot, like when we were making the Shearwater record and um, just in general is, is uh, what's going on, the Marvin Gaye record. It's such an extraordinary record in so many ways. There's nothing like it it just has its own sonic world just purely from that perspective. And then also um, it's, it's just, it's about like living in a time of like chaos and like losing hope and where do you find it? And um, it, it, it really felt, it feels very current that record. I, you know, that's, I've been thinking about revisiting that album lately because it's been a long time. So now that you've said that, I feel like now I, that is a sign from the universe or crank it up. It's a thing of beauty. I mean, the, on the one hand, you've got like these, you know, Motown players just killing it. And then on the other hand, you've also got those beautiful string arrangements, which sound so disconnected from the rest of it, that it's like, it sounds like they're in his head and he's imagining them. And the, uh, then there's like the multiple Marvin Gaye's all singing sort of out of sync with each other. And, and sometimes he just starts talking about like why, you know, there's no point in living. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> it's you know, how can I find a reason to, to go on? And it, it, it gets really dark, that record. Wow. Yeah. It's been a long time, but it's interesting because I heard some, a song from there the other day and I was like, Oh, I need to like, spend some serious time with this record and revisit. Yeah, get out f- flying high in the friendly sky. That one just gets me every time. Didn't he have an album come out around that time that they, the st- studio, not, not the studio, the label shelved because they were like, 
I, th- I feel like they re-released a really they did. Yeah. yeah. There was a, there was like a follow-up to it that, um, that didn't get released into, uh, I know that it exists, but I have not heard it uh, to my shame. Uh, but I want to, and I will now listen to it. Having shamed myself in this interview. <laughs> I'm glad, talking about how much I like what's going on. I'm glad we can encourage our Marvin Gaye world together. He, he just, man, I, I, there's just something about the way that he sings that, that really grabs you. And I don't know if he even knew where it was coming from exactly, but I, I just love all the, all the different, um, all the different voices singing. And then sort of, it's like, he's asking himself questions and doesn't know the answers. Um, and then just the people talking in the background. Yeah. You know, what's going on? The song was like a single that would, they just did self-contained first and people liked it so much that they were like, you got more of that? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so it made, you know, a whole other record that's, you know, the record's basically kind of just that song, just really, really long. Wow. I didn't, I, you know more about this than I do. I, I, I had, cause, I, oh, go ahead. It just feels, it, it felt right it felt right for the time, which is depressing that, it, that 1968 feels right for the time. Uh, although it was a really good time for music. Yeah. It's weird that, that they would be like, this is too political. It's like, wasn't there a lot of that going on in the era or did I miss something? Well, part of the whole thing with Motown though, I think was that Motown was, was very apolitical. Motown was commercial, commercial, commercial. That's, you know, they, they sent the Motown artists to, they basically gave them, they sent this sort of Motown charm school, like how to, how to talk, how to, how to move, how to, you know, all these things. Cause, cause Barry Gordy just wanted this, this product and it sold, you know? Yeah. I was interested because when you said you wanted to, when you were doing the drone music, the drone, cause, and then you said Marvin Gaye is like, you don't even know where he was coming from. Is there a, a that feeling when you're creating that music as well with, where it becomes sort of like uh, meditative and sort of like you're in a Zen state. Sometimes. I mean, one thing we did for, for this record, because I hadn't made a Shearwater record in six years. I made the two Loma records and wrote a book. So I was a little busy, but when it, to, to get back into it, we started making these really long uh, kind of Enoe instrumental pieces that we call quarantine music, which we put up on the Shearwater Bandcamp page there's like five hours of this stuff. And it was just a challenge. Like, okay, in two days or three days, let's make 45 minutes of music. And it has to sort of obey the, the ambient conventions and that like you could listen to it or not listen to it. It doesn't attack you. It, it just sort of inhabits the space that you're in, but allows for, for you to be there too. And, and to have whatever thought you want to have. And uh, those experiments were just really, really fun. We tried a different approach on each one, tried to do things that we had not done before, made funny rules, it just didn't obey the, the normal restrictions that I, would, that I would think of as automatic when we're trying to make a record. And we discovered a lot of things uh, just sonically and texturally about, uh, about how, to, how, to, how to make something that I found really absorbing and affecting. And pieces of those things made their way into the record proper too. That's wild. I, when and I love Loma as well, by the way. And I've had Emily. Oh, thank you. Emily has been on the podcast, and people wrote to me and were like, "You have to have Jonathan on." <laughs> so oh. I'm fulfilling <laughs> requests on top of wanting to speak to you as well. Oh, that's great! Well, I love that somebody wanted to hear from me. That's wonderful. <laughs> Actually, 
Matt, the, this this record, a thing that is happening with this record that I've always wanted to happen, um, which is that the reviews are split. There are people that love it, and there are people that hate it. And it's so much better than it being lukewarm, you know. Yeah. Why? Why do you think that? It, I think that's a good thing too. Because also, I don't. I, I want to. I have a follow up that. But why do you think it's so split? I don't know. It must make people feel something that which delights me more than anything. It's what Ram Dass said, where there's attraction or a strong attraction or a strong repulsion. That's a signal that there's work to be done. And uh, there, there were two reviews that just came out back to back. One of which singled out one song in particular for its ire. And then the next review singled out that same song for why they liked it and how good it was. <laughs> it's just like, that's wonderful. That's fascinating to me. It thrilled me. Yeah. And I mean, I, some of my favorite records had really mixed receptions when they came out. Yeah. And I feel, and I've learned like just about myself as a listener that sometimes if a song hits me in an emotional way and it makes me uncomfortable, I'm like, I don't like that song. It's because it's a, it's making me feel something I don't want to address. I, I don't know if that sounds too abstract or whatever, but no, no, it's like the, the, you know, you really hate the things in other people that you don't like about yourself. Yeah. And like, I, there's a lot of songs from the seventies that make me feel melancholy. And I'm like, Oh, that's because I'm connecting it to, <laughs> to, not to get too therapy, therapy about it, but like my family and those, this time of my life. So anytime I hear music that's sort of in that same tone, it evokes these feelings. And I'm like, Oh, I just don't want to f- experience that emotional state. But like, once I've like sort of addressed that, I can hear the music differently and then have a, a different appreciation for it than just my initial gut reaction to it. Yeah, and it's it's really wonderful to to go to to revisit something you haven't listened to in like twenty years or something like that, and and really encounter it again as fresh as you can. And the the way that it seems different to you, if it does, is the degree to which you're different from how you were, because it's not different. Yeah, you know, it's but it's like this really nice reference point for you. And you go, wow, okay, I, that I used to really like that, and now I can't stand it. Um, so I must be different now, which is sort of a comfort. Yeah, and there's a lot of music, and I've actually been doing that over the last few years where I'm like, all right, I need to revisit music that I liked and disliked as a younger person because my perspective has so drastically changed and my knowledge of music has changed. And it's usually I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) rarely have I encountered something where I was like, you know, I didn't like that, but now I think it's great. Usually it's the other way around. Like what, you know, Jane's addiction or something like what, what, um, what, what would have been some surprises for you? Um, there was a lot of, well, I, I was like a Chicago, you know, my young life. So it was like post punk and like sort of angry, aggressive music. And there was things like, now, now I'm trying to think, of who I didn't like. Um, I guess, I guess to a degree there was, and this don't judge me for this, but like, I always sort of shunned the, the beach boys because part of it was, and the grateful dead part of the beach boys was, I grew up with them in so many commercials as a kid that I couldn't disassociate them from sun kissed oranges. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, talk about that. No band has hoard themselves without more than the beach boys. (laughs) If you're willing to pay, they're willing to be there. And the, the also just the, it's very commercial music in the sense of like a lot of it celebrates kind of 
uh, late, really late fifties, like capitalist America and rah, rah, um, cars. And it, it, it all seems very tied to, to material things. And so even though there's Beach Boys music that isn't that it gets, it, it's really hard not to just think of it all as surf and safari. Yeah. But then I revisit, like when I went and was like, okay, I'm going to listen to the Beach Boys because everybody I know worships the Beach Boys. And then I was, and then I became obsessed and I was like, okay, I was wrong. And there's so much going on. Just obviously the Grateful Dead was just shitty. I'm a punk rock kid. So then everybody, you're supposed to hate him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah. I remember the first time a friend of mine explained to me that punks don't like hippies. And I was like, oh, like you can't like Jimi Hendrix. It's like, not really. Well, why not? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't have that uh, critical thinking skill that you did as a young person. Well, I, I don't know about this. This is a late uh, a realization for me. And the Grateful Dead are funny because they made a lot of really terrible music and a lot of, I think, really good music. And it gets hard to, to parse it out. And then you have to deal with the fans and the whole sort of like the cult of that band, which is not particularly helpful either. So it's... it's uh, yeah. Um, I, There's a lot to, to to get through to get to the good stuff with them. Yeah, me. I did see them as live as in high school, and I was bored. <laughs> and people were like, "Yeah, what? I will." Yeah, but, that was not the era for them, I imagine. <laughs> but I do like you know, I uh, Tim Presley was like because I was surprised to find that he was a big deadhead, and because I was like, "You're a punk rocker. That's not supposed to be." But he pointed me in the direction of some records, and I was like, "Okay, I like I like these. I don't." Will I name my kid Jerry? No, but <laughs> uh, but I no. I've, Jerry Garcia must have been extremely mystified by the whole thing. I, 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 I mean, it worked out well for him, I guess. But it, it <laughs> I know he's. I, I like his voice better than his guitar playing in a lot of ways. Yeah, I like it's. I just there's literally two. I have two records of theirs I'll revisit, and they're the most popular ones. But yeah, there's some stuff that is just like. You nailed it. They've created a lot of awful music too. <laughs> yeah, this is well. I mean, so so have I. I mean, not not at that level, but uh, you know, of the of the stuff that I've made, like that, I would like for anyone to hear. It's it's definitely not all of it, uh, and it's maybe not even some of it. It's it's a, it's a it's a fairly small subset of the thing. Um, I wanted to go back to the reviewer though, because I feel like it doesn't as. Like it doesn't seem fair to listen to an album and then write a critique to me because I feel like sometimes music and a record album is a long haul or a, a getting to know it, and it just seems kind of yeah, strange but, to me. Yeah, but who has that kind of time? I mean, I can't believe any. <laughs> I can't believe anybody actually writes record reviews. The, the, I started to do it a little bit and stopped immediately as soon as I found I reviewed two records in a row that I really didn't like and I was like I just feel gross I don't want to just just dog something that somebody spent a lot of time and effort on and um, yeah. you know and say what I, I, I just I only want to write about something if I really like it and that's it yeah when you was when you because it took six years to make this most recent album and I, it's funny because you mentioned your the book that you wrote, and when I first, uh, like, obviously I knew your music, but I didn't know a great deal about you, so I, when I Googled your name and a book came up about 
uh, birds, I was like, that can't be the same guy. <laughs> like, there's there's two guys with the same name who look kind of similar. <laughs> you know, my, my, my great ambition in life is to be the kind of person where when you leave a room, somebody's like, wait, who was that guy again? It's, <laughs> but I was like, after reading and researching about you, I was just like, you're an insanely impressive human being. <laughs> it's like, oh, sorry, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I don't, I don't know about that, but thank you. But it's like, I, I was like really blown away. And like, I don't know. It was fascinating to me, especially like, I don't know anything about birds and I'm sure a lot of people can say that, but I was like, I'm like, I need to know more about birds. Like it was, well, I didn't know anything about birds when I met this one bird in the Falklands in 1997 by accident. And three of them came up to me and they were just like, you. <laughs> and I was like, me? You know, they were, they were just like, st- I, I went down there, I was on this weird research grant after college where I was going to remote places around the world. Um, and I, was, I wanted to look at remote human communities. And one of them was the Falklands. And when I got there, I mean, it is a very remote human community and super interesting. Uh, but I realized that you can see penguins on their breeding grounds there. And I said, well, who didn't want to see that? Wow. So I went to go, I went to this little island where they were breeding penguins and I was hanging out by these penguins. And then these three sort of things that looked like a cross between a hawk and a crow kind of just suddenly landed next to me and came walking up to me and stared at me like, you know, we've been expecting you kind of thing. And I was like, huh? I've never heard of these. What, what is this? Why are these animals looking at me? Wild animals are supposed to run away or ignore you. They're not supposed to take an interest in you. And so that was just, that was the, the headwaters of this whole thing. And then 25 years later, I finally got this book together, but that opened this door into thinking about the world in a completely different way. That was totally foreign to me at the time. That's, that's wild. Like to, and, and the book kind of takes you through that. Like, I don't assume that you know anything about birds at all when, if, you, if you open the book. You, you start from zero, and I, I start there with you. And, and uh, I don't think birds are better than other organisms. There are people who get really hung up on birds as, like, the thing that they're obsessed with. And to me, they're kind of a really nice gateway drug. Like, if you start paying attention to birds, you're going to start paying attention to other stuff. It's kind of, like... I, I've been noticing because I walk my dogs every morning and I've been noticing birds and I'm like, fuck, I wish I knew what bird that was. Like I've been doing that the last six months or whatever. And I'm like, should I get into birds? And then I was like, is this a sign that I'm becoming an old guy? <laughs> but, yeah, there's that, you know, it, you're like, oh, am I going to be one of those people? And um, you don't have to be, maybe you can, I guess if you want, but the, um, no, I mean, being interested in birds does not make automatically make you a twitcher or um and i'm like terrible with i can't identify uh warblers in fall plumage or shorebirds uh or you know the things that make you that really separate the the sheep from the goats in the in the birding world um i'm not good at that what, what i was good at was just honing in on this one little group of nine species and looking into their you know just asking like what the hell are you why are you like this and and what brought you into being how did you get here and you could really start with anything any living thing and end up with just as interesting story this just happened to be these really charismatic funny curious intelligent and very understudied um birds of prey uh, that are i mean they're sort of like the crows of south america because there's no crows in south america 
so they can have these things instead. And it's sort of like if you built a crow on a falcon chassis. I, I don't know if this is a corny question, but in in researching and learning about these birds, did you discover anything about yourself? Is that really, and if that's a corny, awful question, you could tell me. <laughs> oh, I'm sure the answer is yes. I mean, I, 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 it's hard to say exactly what that is, other than that obviously I identified with them in some way. And one difference that I point out about them is that uh, they're falcons. The, the Caracaras is the name of the group. There's nine species. Um, they're almost all in South America. There's one that comes as far north as, as the United States. And uh, they are not like other falcons. When you think of a falcon, you usually think of a peregrine falcon or a kestrel or uh, one of these birds of prey that's really, really good at hunting and especially good at catching other birds on the wing. They're fast. They're powerful. They um, uh, And they're held up as this kind of standard of, of butch hunterliness in, in birds. The caracaras are like the opposite of this. They're scavengers, they're opportunists, they're social. There's one of them that eats wasps' nests almost exclusively. Wow. They're, the, that one lives in the, in the tropics. That one's fucking insane, that bird. It's the weirdest bird of prey on earth, no question. Red-throated caracaras. There's a couple of chapters about it, and I take this long trip into, the, into southern Guyana with this insane, wonderful Canadian researcher named Sean McCann and um, three Amerindian men, Brian, uh, uh, Brian Duncan, Josie George, and Rambo Roberts from the region. We go up this remote river, and we, we find them up there and a whole bunch of other things. And uh, what's my point here? What am I trying to say? Um. Uh, oh, the, the birds, have, they have this really interesting approach to life. They tend to be, with the exception maybe of that, that wasp-eating one, although even those are really, they're like, a, they're like a tribal. They're, they do these elaborate war dances and live in large family groups with multiple males and multiple females. They nest in bromeliads. They, they seem to raise one chick at a time altogether. I mean, they're just so fascinating. But uh, they, they kind of get into everything. All the caracaras do. They've all got, they're, they're, into, they're interested in whatever you got. And uh, I definitely feel sort of more that pull towards the, the generalist approach to the world uh, versus the specialist one, like the other falcons. Wow, that's fascinating. What is, I don't know if this is too broad or wide of a question, but it was there, like, how did you come across this bird and go, and then go, okay, I'm going to write a book? <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> I didn't start writing 25 years ago. I mean, it was just a long, slow process of, uh, I kept going back to the Falklands and working with the, the birds there and the people who cared about them there. And there were just so few people interested in these things that it, it was really very easy to keep up. And over time, as I just kept probing these, these questions of like, what are they? Where did they come from? It, it, the, the path just kept opening and opening. And finally, um, I was uh, living in New York and I was broke. Uh, and we hadn't, I was trying to finish the Shearwater Record jet plane in Oxbow, which was the last one that we did before this one. And I was out of money. And I didn't know how we were going to finish it. I asked Sub Pop for the rest of the money that we were going to need to finish it. And they're like, ah, it's a little too much. And uh, I was sitting in a, a cafe and I was starting to like write a, uh, like a suicide note. I was just really despondent. And I was like, I no, I'm not doing this. I've got to, there must be some way that I can get somebody to pay me to do something. And so I thought, well, what, what about if I wrote a book? Would that work? And 
a series of, uh, of coincidences that uh, led to me being able to talk to. Um, well, what happened was I, I, uh, I interviewed, I, I didn't interview. <laughs> so I always feel like I end up with first year with cool, but this is exactly how the book is. So I guess it makes sense. But I did an interview for the onion where they did this feature called fan up where you talk about something that you like. And I think the person before me had done burritos in Chicago. And I talked about Peter Matheson's books. He was a writer who wrote really awesome works of, of both fiction and nonfiction. He's the only writer ever to win the national book award for fiction and nonfiction. And uh, he wrote a book called the snow leopard. That's probably his most famous book. I just really liked his writing. And I talked about his books and especially this really experimental novel that he wrote called Far Tortuga. And, uh, some months after that, his last book came out, which was a novel, and his uh, his publicist got in touch with me and said, hey, would you like to interview him? And I thought, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I want to interview my favorite writer. I kind of like our relationship, how it is. <laughs> but you also can't say no. And so uh, I said, yeah, I'll do it. And um, the, that interview eventually ran into Believer, and it was the last interview that he ever did because he died a couple of months later of cancer. And his publisher really liked it, and I went up to their office just to say howdy to him. And um, they said, well, if you ever want to write a book, let us know. And I was like, what? That's how this works? No, <laughs> 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 so I better go get an agent then. Uh, so I went and got an agent, and he said, well, what do you want to write a book about? And I just stared at him like, I, I don't know. Uh, something. So I was sitting there in that cafe thinking about how it was going to go on living. And I thought, well, maybe I could write a book about that, that Caracara thing. That seems like a, I could write a good story out of that. And it, it just sort of snowballed in my head and I hashed out the proposal with my, with my agent in about a, a month. Uh, and he put it out and sold it within a week. And then next thing I knew I had a book contract That's and it just, it saved my life. That is, I'm like speechless. That's an incredible fucking story. (laughs) (laughs) Very weird to tell it to you, but, you know, seeing as we just met. (laughs) Well, I'm glad, it's just, I mean, and I have been in that spot where you were in that cafe thinking about writing your suicide note. I've 100% been there, so I relate uh, I've, well, so many people have is the thing. I mean, I, I put a song on that record called Back Channels. It's basically about that specifically. And in the in the tour for that record, I would talk about it before we we did the before we played the song. Usually, I'd just say I had sort of a little speech that got to be sort of the same over the course of the tour. It was like this is the about that little voice that says, you know, the best thing you could do is just kill yourself. And then there'd be this pause and there'd be this sort of nervous titter. And I'd be like, but that, I know that doesn't apply to anybody in here. It's just me. And then people would laugh and then people would come up to me after the show and talk about it. And I was like, God, this is just, it's such a taboo about talking about this when it's just like a robocall from the universe. It's really not personal. It, it just is one of the messages that the human brain gives to the human body. And if we can just accept it as that, it, it shrinks way down. Um, and, and you don't, you, know, you may still have to reckon with it, but at least you can do it without shame. Yeah, that is, to, I've tried to be open about, because I have been there a couple times, and, um, 
But I feel like if we are ashamed of it and we keep it to ourselves and hide it, that doesn't help anybody. That doesn't help anybody address it within themselves. No, and you're not going to get out of it either that way. The the, the person who really taught me about that was was Thor Harris, who used to play drums for Shearwater and then later for Swans, um, and now Thor and Friends, who's this wonderful cartoon character of a man who lives in Austin, Texas. And he's... Um, I toured with him for years and he was just very open about this, about, about mental health, about depression, about suicidal thoughts, this kind of thing. And he sometimes, you know, we'd, we'd just tell each other, like, how are you doing today? How's your brain? He'd say, how's your brain? And I'd be like, I think my brain's trying to kill me. But it's, it's a wonderful question to ask people because it, it really lets you regard yourself from a, from a slight distance for a second. That's great. That's funny because I just interviewed Sarah Laporta and she plays with Thor. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's weird how things just intermingle sometimes. And Well, the, the lines connecting Thor to what, whoever you got are, are, are many. <laughs> Thor is one of those people. He's one of those nexus people that all kinds of people pass through. Uh, so the, the odds of being connected to him by some small number of degrees are, are greater than for most humans, I would say. But that's a great because I always feel like the you know the obligatory like hey how you doing question and it's like I've always taken the approach of don't ask me that if you don't want to know <laughs> like and I've said to no, people and, yeah there's a response to that and the response is I'm fine it's it's nobody really wants to know the answer to that question if they just ask that but if somebody says how's your brain they want to know. I like this. I try to remember to ask my friends that when I can. I probably don't do it as often as I should. Yeah. Because I, I, I think because I've been in that dark spot that I feel like it's important because I felt, I remember I would wake up in the morning and I'd look at my closet and I would go, well, if I, if I can hammer out a little hole there, I could put the rope through there. And like, yeah. And I was just in this bad mental, but thankfully like it lifted. It was, I was like, I either do this or I check myself into a hospital. Like it was, and then I was like sort of in debate about that for, and then gratefully that the, the, it lifted. I don't know how, but it was definitely a defining moment where I was like, I need to find some other things to attach myself to other than like career and shallow fucking bullshit <laughs> yeah well I, the, I was thinking about how some of these reviews um the, the, earlier in my career i guess did i have a career i can say that now i think I'm 46 years old i have a goddamn career <laughs> um the, the would have just sunk me you know um the, i remember a, a couple you know three three albums back or whatever this animal joy came out and we were on tour i think with saint vincent and the, the review came out it was ian cohen reviewed it in pitchfork and he gave it a six point something and just at that moment when you see that six you know that that means that's like no european festival invites for you and and i was sitting and i was in a and we were already on the tour in a hotel room in it was in a hotel in detroit at night after the show and I was just sitting there reading this thing and I was like god damn it and the, the review didn't even like it got the the engineer producer of the record wrong it said it was Phil Eck it wasn't I've never met Phil Eck but, and it just hammered me on certain things that actually I think and this is usually true about Ian is that he's right a lot of the time uh, which really hurts because the, you hope that people won't notice the things that are wrong with your your work 
you know, you're thinking, well, maybe it's just me, you know, maybe I'm overcritical. And then somebody like pokes you right in your sore spot. Um, like the guy punching Indiana Jones in, the, in Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark, right? Where he shot him in the truck chase. And the, um, and it's like, God, there it goes. I can't like, that's, and we ended, you know, we played 108 shows or something that year and ended the year $30,000 in debt. And that's not Ian's fault, <laughs> but it's, um, but yeah, I could just like see the whole trajectory of how it was going to go from that moment forward. And, um, so, uh, fast forward to last week, uh, we I saw that he had been assigned to review the new record and I was like, Oh God, oh no, here we go again. <laughs> But and uh, and he actually get, was quite a good review, middling score. Um, not going to change my life or anything. Not going to to really help or harm the band. But this time I felt fine about it. I was like, gosh, I'm so lucky that the you know the publicist I worked with was able to even get the record reviewed. That it came out on the day that the record came out. That's great. Um, I think he identifies some things that I think are really good about the record. And he also puts his finger on some things that I think probably are its weaknesses. That's fair. How mad am I supposed to be about this? But I no longer depend on them for whether I live or die. And, and that was how it felt, you know, back then. Yeah. I, it's also bizarre to me that they one that like pitchfork or any other for thing can have that much influence over what happens next? Like, you go yeah, and that's Europe. not, yeah. Oh yeah. It's huge. I mean, I ever had a booking agent tell me once he said, you know, if you don't get an 8.0 or something, you don't go above an eight, they won't program you. <laughs> and that's not the pitchfork writer's fault or responsibility. Their responsibility, hopefully is to say what they think, but it's a reality. I mean, or it was certainly, especially around that time, I think maybe a little bit less now. But, um, yeah, at that point, you've really given over the con- the control of your life to people that you have no intersection with at all. And it, it's just a totally helpless feeling. Um, but the thing that's, that's allowed me to reclaim my dignity is honestly, is my uh, Patreon page. Oh, good. I'm glad you found your dignity there. <laughs> <laughs> it helped a lot. But I mean, like that I mean, was like, that moment ahead. where I was contemplating suicide was a lot of it was I had a screenplay I wrote and I thought was getting made and then it all got pulled out from under me and like I put invested so much of my personal worth in this thing thinking it would change my life and everything would be fine and though I went through this very dark period of time I realized I can't attach myself to these things because if it gets made or if it doesn't, the cycle begins again with the next fucking thing I have to do. And it was like, yeah. Yeah. So I took up meditation shortly after. Did it help? It did. Any particular style of meditation? I've been meandering through various sorts of approaches. I started with, uh, I don't know if you know Duncan Trussell, but he, uh, this Nigerian form of, uh, chant, uh, chanting instead of like a direct meditation. And then I s- mm-hmm. went to a Shambhala center in Eagle Rock neighborhood of California. And I st- did like some stuff there. Oh, I've been up there. I think the one that's up on the top of the mountain there. No, that's a different the, um, one, I, but I know what you're talking oh, okay. about. But, uh, and then I also did. Because that's in Mount Washington. Yes. Yes. I've been wanting to visit that actually. 
And so I've sort of like hobbled together my own approach, I guess, over various times. And then, mm-hmm. you know, just Buddhism in general of not, you know, but the whole philosophy of attachment and stuff is like i mean because that's literally what i did as i attached myself worth to this yeah exactly yeah you let you let your who you are be determined by things that were completely external to you and once you've done that it's 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 just a terrible feeling it's you've, you've mentally enslaved yourself to this thing and uh you know even if you got everything that you wanted in that scenario it probably still wouldn't be what you really wanted no, and I would have been, it probably would have, at that time in my life, it would have stoked the flames of my insecurity more. And it would have, who knows what it would have, and I was not a well-grounded person at all. And I would have, it would have, if I would have gotten like an Oscar or whatever, I would have probably imploded. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing about, um, uh, this reminds me of a thing about Peter Matheson. When I talked to him, um, we talked a little bit about the, the Snow Leopard, his most famous book, which I'm sure he was tired of talking about. But he, he said when it came out, it was like the start of the Super Bowl the other night, which was a debacle that year. And the, uh, he said it was uh, it came out like on the day that there was a, a three-month strike at the Times or something, or, or 90 days or something. For It was going to be on the front page of the New York Times Book Review in 1978 or whatever it was. And he said, my agent said, buy yourself a yacht. You've hit the big one. He said, and eventually, you know, it sold. It, 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 it like it won the National Book Award or whatever, but it wasn't a big, you know, a big success. And I'm just staring at him, going like, "This, you're, you're Peter Matheson. You wrote like twenty great books. Thomas Pynchon admired your your experimental novel. Like you, you won the National Book Award for fiction and nonfiction. You like." I will never be as good a writer as you. You're not happy with this. You're about to die. <laughs> you know. Like, like... Yeah. <laughs> and it it just reminded me that like there's there's always a higher mountain when you're when you're in that realm. I mean, I think he held it relatively lightly at that point, but he was aware of it and it was real. Yeah, and I I live in Los Angeles where success is equated to money and not quality of work, and that can really just and it's like and i realized shortly after that situation too i was like oh one doesn't move to la because they want to be a great artist <laughs> like that is not part of the equation at all you know dan dazinski who was the co-producer of the record with me and was also in loma with me and is just an absolute genius of a musician arranger producer engineer and doesn't know it he's so self-effacing it's it's painful uh, he was thinking about moving to LA for a little bit. And the guy that we worked with named Brian Reitzel on the on jet plane in Oxbow mostly does film music. And is just a wonderful, interesting guy um, said to him, said, don't do it. You've got this nice place in Texas where you live and you've got your studio set up in there. It sounds great. Your work is really good. You, in, in LA, you'd be living in a closet and hating your life and being an assistant at some big studio. Don't do it. And, I don't think that was the only reason Dan didn't do it, but I think that helped. And, and it, it's really true. There was nothing there for him that, that he would have really wanted. Yeah. I think my, I'm my, now I'm at a point where I, there's nothing here for me to want other than my <laughs> friends. And I, I'm looking to get the fuck out of here. 
And I, I'm like, I'm I a, feel like you've called the suicide hotline, but it's like the reverse suicide hotline where I talk you into killing yourself. <laughs> but I want, I like, I want to try a new city and have something new and like sort of be re-energized and be more creatively focused than waiting for some schmo behind a desk to go yes or no. Like that's really what it's like. My friend Jonah Ray always says, he's like, why do we wait around for someone to tell us, yes, we can create something. Let's just go do it. And I'm like, yeah, fuck this place. <laughs> there is a lot of, there, there is so much power and energy in just, just starting a thing. Yes. I think, I think Goethe said something like that, like, you know, action has, action has magic, grace and power in it. And, and for this Shearwater record to tie all back into that, yeah, <laughs> that was, uh, I mean, that's what happened in a way. We, we, uh, the, the sub pop was going to do the record and then they weren't going to do the record. And it sort of went on and on for a while. And finally I was like, look, I'm just going to try to crowdfund this record and see if that works and we'll see what budget we get. And I, I put up a, well, it was an Indiegogo thing. And I, I put for different levels of it, like how, uh, what the review that I expected the record to get for the budget, where it was like, you know, for $10,000, like the band clearly did not have enough time in the studio, you know, like that kind of thing. That's great. And it got better for a while. And, it, but as the numbers got higher, it started to get worse again after a certain point. <laughs> I was going to ask, cause I noticed I looked to see if, cause I know you did stuff on sub pop and I, I didn't see a label attached. So I was curious about that. So I'm glad you No, they, they, they waffled about it, but ultimately decided not to do it. And, um, the Sub Pop has done nothing but help me. They're still putting out the next record, uh, Loma record. Um, I've never made them very much money. Uh, the And uh, Jonathan Poneman has, has just been nothing but, he, he's been nothing but a friend um, to me and to my work. So I have nothing bad to say about Sub Pop at all. But it was, um, but ultimately I was kind of like, I had that feeling of like, I don't need to ask these people for permission to do this. The, the, but the line, you know, the, like the Dylan lyric that haunts my dreams is, oh my God, am I here all alone? And just doing a crowdfunding thing and saying, hey, do you, does anybody want this? If I make this, is anybody actually going to want it? And enough people said, oh yeah, we want this. That I was like, oh, okay, well then I'll do it. And they equipped me to do it better than I'd ever been equipped to make a record before. That's got to feel great. Oh, it's fucking awesome. But you don't need that many of them is the thing. Like we're in this world where like for... You know, if you wanted to make I don't know, some amount of money that seems like a lot of money, like $80,000 or something on Spotify, you'd need 20 million plays of a thing that you owned. Whereas if you had some crowdfunding thing and you could convince 800 people to pay you $100, it's the same. It seems way easier to convince 800 people of something than 20 million. Yeah. Was this because I read that you've recorded the album all around the world? Was this was it a long process? <laughs> Is that not true? Uh, that's that's an exaggeration. I mean, there are pieces of it that are like <laughs> I did not. <laughs> Somebody I didn't lied get a million dollars to make this record. No, um, uh, I used I made field recordings when I was doing research for the book, and the book that uh, you know took place all over South America because there are caracaras everywhere you go in South America. There's at least one species in every single habitat. So they're a wonderful ticket to go anywhere. Cause like, hmm, that sounds interesting. I wonder which caracaras are there and what are they doing? And, uh, 
but the, the Southern Guyana part that I talked about um, was really very special. Um, it was like six weeks in this remote forest and we didn't see anybody else in there at all. It was just us and the river and the animals. And the, so I made some recordings in there and a couple of those ended up in the record. So they certainly have the, the only Guyanese toucan solo in a record that's <laughs> ever been used. I find it. And it's not played for laughs or anything. It's not silly. It's like, it, it's a beautiful sound that it's really kind of evocative. And is there some of that in the, in Lomov's last record, if I'm not mistaken, like, <laughs> is it like environment? Yeah. Loma, I mean, our rule for Loma was always that this, if we have a sound that has to come from around the house or has to come from wherever we are, it can't be some stock thing. It can't be from some remote place. It has to be from right there. I mean, in the first Loma record, we made a rule that if a dog, there, there are two dogs there at the house. And if one of them ends up, you know, makes noise or whatever, that's just going to be in the record. We have to deal with it. So the dogs run by the microphone. Sometimes they just freak out in the middle of one song, barking at something They're just, and the moment that we did that, it suddenly let you relax because otherwise you're always worried about the, you know, the dogs going to ruin the takes. Like, nope, if the dogs are in the take, the dogs are in the take. I like that. It worked out great. Nobody ever mentioned it either. It's it's like, you know, that psychology experiment where they have the two teams playing basketball and you're supposed to track a score. And in the middle of the game, a guy comes out in a gorilla suit and bangs his chest and walks off. And then at the end of it, they ask you about the gorilla. And people, people say, what gorilla? You know, because they weren't kids. I'm like, didn't you notice that there are dogs barking in the middle of that song? Nobody ever seems to care. I Yeah. There's a chair solo on that first Loma record. The, the, we just noticed that this chair, like dragging a chair across this concrete floor sounded really awesome. It kind of sounds like somebody's scronking in a saxophone or something. So we put this chair in the, in the top of the song. It sounds great. I think that, I mean, that's not to sound goofy but like that's how we should approach life like be open to all things all things are gifts yeah the, when you can manage to do it they just turn up I, I don't feel like i'm able to get into that state of mind all the time but the moments when i am i'm always rewarded the, there's a there's a tree outside the the window or the room where we were mixing it that was like a, um, it's a crab apple it's got these really um biologists would say sclerophyllous but like waxy leaves and when the when it shakes in the wind, it goes. It's this beautiful rattly sound, and I kept hearing it while we were mixing this one song. And I was like, you know, that just sounds really, really good. Let's go record that tree and put it in the song. And we did, and it totally improved the song and made the whole thing better. That's great. I wanted to because you mentioned uh, jet plane and oxbow, and I read, mm -hmm. and maybe I got this wrong too because because i had the all around the world thing wrong but uh that you you kind you kind of wrote it as a protest album but you wanted it to not be bleak and about being human which i thought was um i don't know i think when you you don't think of those approaches when you hear protest album i think there's a definite sort of uh thing one here well, I, th I think go ahead you're talking about both that record and the new one. The, the, the new one, I didn't want to make. Um, I didn't want to make a hopeless record. And at the end of the Jetplane Knoxboro tour, it was the end. It was 2016. I mean, it just felt terrible, uh, and I didn't know how to make music out of that place. But I got to. I felt like I'd gotten too focused in on the human world and what was happening in it. And I worked on the you know, the book and the Lumber records in the years following, and it really helped me zoom out a bit. 
Um, so the Bowie around about scary monsters where he, he described, um, I think, I think he was talking about the song scary monsters and he described it as social protest music. And I was like, yeah, that's like, that, that's it. That's a protest record right there. You know, that's what, that's what it should be. Uh, Cause that record is, is angry. I mean, it's just like sort of seething, but it's not the, the it's object is not entirely clear or it's abstract enough that you can, you can pin a lot of things to it. And um, I wanted to, to drag some of that energy into to Jet Plane and Oxbow. I think that's a much more friendly record than than um, Scary Monsters, but it's uh, nonetheless had that was the kind of uh, that was the direction that I was aiming in there. Um, when you were because of the six year break of Shearwater Records, was it something that you was like preoccupying your mind, like I want to get back to this, or do you just sort of are you more just fluid with it all and like, okay, now I'm doing this or is, I, I don't know, I guess. Well, uh, Loma is a democracy um, and I'd had enough democracy, but uh, <laughs> so I, I think our country has had enough democracy too. I want <laughs> too, much, too much of the wrong kind. The, 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 the uh, I just wanted to have a thing where I was in charge again um, and see what that would be like have been some time having passed and also it was we made a lot of it during the the earlier phases of the pandemic where we were really locked down out there in texas i was living in a trailer next to dan's house and um so i mean it's a little bit like like bear rabbit you know please don't throw me in that briar patch well if we're stuck out here we might as well make a record thank you very much for listening to this episode of conversations with dwyer with jonathan myberg the part two to this episode on my Patreon, thematdwire.com, we'll link you to it, is really great. We continue the conversation of records we revisited and more music stuff, and it's a really fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoy it, um, and I appreciate you just listening. Thank you very much. 